0: and welcome to episode 17 of What's on the Pile. I'm Nathan Besner and joining me tonight is Jenner. Hello. Shane Lee. Hey. And Jane Belcastro. Yo. Tonight we've got ourselves a Brian De Palma double feature with Phantom of the Paradise, a batshit musical horror comedy that makes Phantom of the Opera a rock rock opera by way of Faust and the portrait of Dorian Gray, followed by Raising Cain, the story of John Lithgow, John Lithgow, and John Lithgow, as he goes all John Lithgow his way across the screen screen in a film that primarily features John Lithgow. Seriously, that's... how accurate? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, let's start with *Fan of the Paradise*. This uh, this was definitely on my pile. Um, I'd never even heard of this before you brought it to us, Jenner. Um, oh, th- th-
1: this is uh, absolutely one of my favorite movies. Uh, it is. Uh, I-, I it's not really directly related uh, to the two Rocky horror. Uh, 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 Pictures that is uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Shock Treatment, but there is a certain common DNA by virtue of being a musical horror-ish product of uh, nineteenth century, uh, sorry, nineteen seventies Fox uh, or twentieth century Fox, Uh, as well as of course having uh, Jessica Harper, who was uh, Jim Charm Uh, on the basis of this picture, Jim Sharman's first choice for Janet in. Uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but she was unavailable at the time, and uh, uh, then, of course, he finally got her to play Janet in Shock Treatment,
0: and this was her first performance. This, right? This was her uh, this was her first credited performance. Yes, that's some good work. Um, I've never been a terribly big fan of Brian De Palma's. I, I think I'm on record as uh, as not being a terribly big fan of De Palma's. However, if I were to rate De Palma films, this would be pretty high up there of the ones that I could watch, like with the Untouchables and stuff like this. It's 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 a, it's inherently more watchable than something like Dress to Kill, we'll say.
1: I I have sort of an opposite experience. I like De Palma the more completely unhinged he is. Uh, the. uh I, I know that, uh, that a lot of his uh, uh, pseudo-Hitchcockian thrillers uh, you know, got dinged for ostensible misogyny, but really I don't think that's necessarily a, uh, a fair view on them, mostly because I think they're more about misogynistic characters that Brian De Palma in varying degrees conceived and or wrote than uh,
0: being misogynistic uh, themselves. Um, I, I, I would think the problem would be that uh, he has so many misogynistic characters. One has to ask, is he himself misogynistic, if those are the characters he's drawn to?
1: I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I suppose you could say the same thing about uh, about Hitchcock. On the other hand, yeah, I, I think you could probably come up with the same answer about Hitchcock. That's actually kind of a matter of record. But uh, I don't know. It, it's, I, De Palma actually leaves me cold with his... More conventional films. I mean, The Untouchables is—it's fine. It—it's it, yeah. fine. It—it it doesn't do much for me. Uh, I, I suppose the uh, odd—I uh, I guess kind of the tipping point between you know studio-ready De Palma and batshit crazy De Palma is probably Scarface. Uh, which uh, I'm still a little bit iffy on as a whole, even if it has uh, some, some really amazing moments in it. But uh, I would say that I absolutely adore *The Phantom of the Paradise*. I, I, I think it is uh, an absolute masterpiece, which is presently going to expose a rift in my relationship with my significant other. Uh, but it, I would say that uh, if De Palma had never made *Blowout*, uh, that uh, that uh, this was his best movie. That's those are high. Those are
0: that's high praise. Well, uh, let's talk about the movie itself. Um, I. Actually, let's. Uh, who else hadn't seen this? Shane, had you seen this?
2: I also had never heard of this movie. Uh, there's a, l- I've, you know, I've seen the famous De Palmas. I've, a lot of his less famous movies are kind of a blind spot for me. I so, watching this, I get this. I, I enjoyed this movie a lot. Actually, uh, I think Jane had prepared us all to. Uh, <laughs> maybe dislike it or, or be ambivalent towards it. I, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I, uh, ups,
1: I upsold it. She downsold it. <laughs>
3: well, I did you a favor because <laughs> yeah. if you had been expecting, you know, some fine art, at least your, you know, expectations were tempered. Slightly. Yeah, I, had, yes. I,
2: I had no idea what it was going to be about. It even took me a while to pick up that it was a riff on Phantom of the Opera, which I found interesting that this came out Almost like more than a decade before uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, which, you know, grew up in the, growing up in the eight ladies in early 90s, Phantom was everywhere. It was almost, almost like Hamilton at the time. Uh, I remember we were an orchestra. We played music at the night when we uh, my family went to Toronto. We saw a performance of Phantom of the Opera there. So I think it's interesting that he De Palma, you know, decided just to do a, a riff on this uh, on a novel, basically. I
1: don't know. I, I, I had a peculiar experience uh, of this because, of course, it was not particularly successful when it was uh, originally theatrically released, uh, with, with one notable exception that I'll probably circle back on uh, later on, but it was a very early VHS release. And uh, at the time that I was kind of starting seriously to pay attention to some of the more ultra listings in the TV guide, it was pretty much ubiquitous on late night television on uh, the, uh, on the UAF, UHF channels. I never actually saw it in that context. I didn't actually see it uh, until the, uh, the 1990s uh, Fox video uh, sell through VHS release, uh, but instantly absolutely adored it. Um, yeah, so but I, my, I suppose my incidental point is I, was, I think I was actually dimly aware of this movie before I was actually aware of The Phantom of the Opera as such.
0: Now, William Finley, did he play
1: Leach? Yes, uh, yeah, Winslow Leach. Actually, I discovered uh, in reading up on this in the uh, uh, run-up to this episode that uh, I am pretty sure that uh, Winslow Leach, or uh, the name Winslow Leach, is an affectionate homage to Wilford Leech. Uh, who was uh, Brian De Palma's uh, mentor uh, in the theater department at Sarah Lawrence, where he was actually one of the first male students, and uh, also his co-director on his very early uh, feature, The Wedding Party, which also had William Finley in it. Uh, Finley is kind of an interesting character in his own right. Uh, Aside from uh, doing... a number of pictures for De Palma, and weirdly enough, Silent Rage, the Chuck Norris movie, <laughs> uh, and uh, at least three pictures for Toby Hooper. He remained sort of semi-retired for almost his entire career after uh, about, uh, I think, 1983 or somewhere thereabouts. But uh, I, I adore William Finley. He is one of my uh, one of those. Uh, utterly singular character actors who I just, I just get an absolute thrill every time that i bumble across a movie that he appeared in I, I i think if he wasn't quite so weird looking or possibly even being as weird looking as he is he could have been the nicholas cage of the 70s and 80s to, <laughs> to the extent that nicholas cage was not the nicholas cage of the 80s of course
2: yeah i i was surprised uh I didn't know how the story was going to go. I only vaguely remember the story of Phantom, but, you know, when William Finley is playing uh, Winslow Leach, I was surprised he was going to be the lead that we were going to follow around. And then, of course, you know, he's in prison within 15 minutes, and then things just go batshit from there, and he's no longer, you know—you no longer see his face for the rest of the movie, really. But, uh, I mean, I, th- I did think he was an engaging presence. This is my first time seeing him in any movie. I don't think I'd even heard of him.
1: He is a singularly expressionistic actor, which is the thing, uh, which is somewhat mirrored in the movie as a whole. It's kind of a perfect match. And as far as I can recall, it was actually his only lead, even if he kind of technically shared the lead with Paul Williams. Um, but yeah, no, he's he's a singular presence and dominates the screen like very few other actors that I can think of without even particularly trying uh, in, in a lot of the other pictures that he appeared in.
0: Uh that that uh musical uh the, the first time he does the musical number the the faust play or, uh it's such cantata. a it's such is a weird paul? voice it's is su-
1: that paul williams no no the first uh, the first uh performance uh, that he does the one where he's just the uh the uh, intermission pianist yeah. uh, that
0: actually is finley uh the
1: the, oh. the uh, i mean later
0: on but but they but they lip-synced him, right? <laughs> they had to. Have. It looks like it was lip-synced.
1: Yeah, no. The, uh, the I, as far as I know, there wasn't really any any onset sound recording uh, for the uh, for the musical numbers in this. Uh, uh, an incidental point in which it actually differed from uh, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which uh, followed eventually a bit more successfully the following year. Uh, I, I think part of the, the uh, there there are some other similarities there. I was struck uh, on this most recent viewing that the uh, resurrection of beef uh, scene relatively late in the film um, did have a lot of resemblance to the birth of Rocky sequence from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think it was only because Phantom of the Paradise was not particularly successful that uh, that, uh, Fox actually figured they could get away
2: with that. I actually have my notes, the name Beef, written in all caps (laughs) as soon as he was introduced. What a great name for... Uh, anyways, I want to hear from Jane. I want to hear about your thoughts in this movie. We...
3: Oh, okay. Well, I thought it would be nice to let you guys just you know have a love fest on it when I discovered that all three of you enjoyed it. Um, but uh, okay, well, we'll. I do. I think one of the, my favorite parts is um, you know the uh, William. Uh, what's his face? Well, okay. We'll we'll just talk about the Phantom i can't remember his name wilford Wil, winslow leach Leech. winslow leach okay so the only thing i really like about that about him i mean about the whole thing is him getting angry and freaking out all the time that <laughs> is about it um i i don't like the songs um Oh my gosh, Jessica Harper dancing! My God, I know she can <laughs> dance. So what was that? I, 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 I know the that hell was. What was that? I, that whole like kind of like shuffling jig kind of, and then that, and she's like I, supposed to be angry and looking at at a camera. Like she takes up the challenge to do her big song, and and she looks about as tough as a hamster. Um, and I mean, she should have like channeled her inner Joan Jet. And like, gone for it. But no, no, I don't know what that, what was I don't that? Know, I, I then, find the chicken strut um, kind of charming, that awkward personally. That freaking love scene, that long, overly long, awkward love scene of Jessica Harper rubbing Paul Williams's nipple yeah. over and over. It's like, God damn, what are you doing to me? I took some issue I'm with sorry, that maybe, scene. It's <laughs> are okay. You, are you all right? Do you, do you need a break? I mean, come on, I can, I can, I can. Calm down, but he did ask me to be nice. (laughs) I was like, "You might as well ask water not to be wet." I mean, come on. Well, I I
0: think it's I think it's fair to find criticism in this film. I I certainly have some I'd like to bring up.
3: There are some things. Beef was fantastic. I the minute he came on and they started, you know, playing some harder rock music, I was like, "Yeah, okay, all right." Now I can get into it. Then they kill him. Yeah, I mean,
2: I I, want to see, I want to see a full rock opera of Faust. I want to see the full production. That just sounds like a great idea. Yeah,
3: that would be fine.
2: I mean, Paul Paul Williams is still alive. (laughs) Yeah, apparently, I only know Paul Williams from a cameo in Community. He was uh, apparently in an episode of that. That's how I, like, when I saw him, the younger version in the movie, I'm like, I know that face, even though I don't know who that guy is. And I looked up his current self, and I was like, "Wait, I think I know that." And I looked up his filmography. Apparently, he was on Community. And did you see? Ba-
1: did him. you see Baby Driver? He
3: he was on all I, sorts of game shows.
1: I oh, did yeah, see Baby, Baby
2: Driver. Driver. It's been a couple of years.
1: Yeah, he was the butcher. Butcher. The I don't, the, I don't, I the don't arms. remember that character. The arms dealer.
2: Okay, then maybe <laughs> yeah. I recognize him from that too.
1: Now I will. I will I will bet you dollars to donuts that Edgar Wright is a fan of Phantom of the Paradise, but I think Paul Williams' appearance in Baby Driver was more of an homage uh, to uh, Williams' role in the first three Smokey and the Bandit movies.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, Paul Williams, back in the 70s, he was on like, like Match Game and all those, you know, like, was he on? Like what's my no not what's my I, what some, what a bunch of like you know seventies game shows and that's how I first saw him and then of course you know he did the Muppet movie music which I love
0: yeah which, he did which, Rainbow Connection
3: yes and so you know Jenner is okay with the Muppet movie but he hates the Rainbow Connection and
0: it creeps me
3: out yeah, I guess it, it absolutely
0: doesn't. creeps me the hell out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. That song I makes know. me makes me weepy. <laughs> yeah,
3: I know. Misty. But, and, but yeah. the thing is is I made him watch the Muppet movie, uh you know, shortly after we watched Fan of the Paradise, I think. And um it was the he's first like, time. I don't I'd know why, seen it in why you don't like. Yeah, he had not. He had not. You hadn't seen it before, had you?
1: I had. I. I, oh, okay. I had seen it lots and of times. And he's like, I but... don't
3: understand why you don't like the music from *Phantom of the Paradise* more. And I'm like, I mean, it's the Chopin Bruckalier song. You know, you know that Dana Carvey <laughs> thing where he's like playing piano and going, "A Chopin just kind of making stuff up. And and you know, yeah. oh
2: yeah, I, I wish mean, I had
3: friends, I and oh, what, what,
2: what? I I didn't think the songs were particularly strong. I mean, I don't remember any of them, uh, for one thing, but I didn't think it was terrible. I mean, it was just kind of there.
1: Uh, I will allow that uh, that Harper's songs were not her strongest. Uh, a, a, as I said to myself when I was thinking about uh, about this earlier, it's uh, well it, uh, she had better songs to sing in Shock Treatment, and she danced better in Suspiria. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at the uh, at, at the same time, you know, she's she's got a good voice. She's got apt acting chops. If anything, her character I think is a bit underwritten. But it's it's not the center of the movie.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more about. Oh, did you have some? uh, I was just
1: going to say. I I actually find that weird chicken strut dance thing that she does, arguably a flaw, but still kind of goofily charming in its own right. They're uh, rather like the other film that we're going to be uh, uh, talking about later on. There is a lot of this movie that uh, kind of kind of functions uh, as uh, part of it functions as satire, but part of it functions as parody. If that makes any sense.
3: Well, I guess, it she it includes a lot be, of. Sorry, she was supposed to be throwing down a challenge, answering a challenge, and she does that chicken dance. I mean, <laughs> maybe don't dance at all I, I, and sing your ass off.
0: I would chalk that okay, up okay, to sorry. Brian De Palma's <laughs> weird sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, yeah, yeah. that that scene where he gets ki- where Winslow gets kicked out of the uh, out of the the office, and it's all done in fast motion. And That's everything, hilarious. it's almost like, a... uh, <laughs> well, 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 I find it interesting
1: that aside from the music so much, or uh, aside from the actual musical numbers, so much of this movie is scored in this weird sort of, you know, uh, tinkly, fluttery, quasi Baroque, early classical style, uh, which has taken me several, which it took me several viewings to actually notice how much of that was in there.
0: Uh, <laughs> when, uh, when winslow's coming up to swanage and they start singing like i'm gonna meet the devil i was like wow that's on the nose <laughs> <laughs> that entire sequence it, it just spelled out exactly what he was about to do
3: <laughs> oh and how about all I... those uh, uh those girls auditioning with the terrible voices too i, I just have to throw <laughs> that in there before i forget because that would happen when he was walking up to Swanage and. And all those girls just like shrieking. Oh, I know it was supposed to be a contrast, but it was so much of it. I don't know. Never mind. I'm sorry. Let's get back to. Oh, you're
1: you're fine. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I will allow that
3: there is uh, – I actually uh,
1: really like most of the songs in this one. There is only one song that I absolutely, absolutely love to the point where I want to do it at karaoke if, if we ever have a Dragon Con again, uh, which is the, uh, the closing theme, The Hell of It, uh, which apparently Williams uh, liked so much that he uh, did it at one point on the Brady Bunch Hour, believe it or not, and on another occasion on the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Meet Dracula, uh, which I now have to hunt up just because that's a thing that exists, apparently. But uh, I really, really adore that song. As, as an aspect of the text of the film, as much as anything else, basically, uh, you know, Swan was defeated. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the Phantom died, but the last song is ba- it feels like a song that uh, like Swan memorializing uh, Winslow, uh, which again goes back sort of to to the way that the uncredited opening narration by Rod Serling kind of pitches the film as well. The movie keeps feeling like it is thinking of Winslow as the villain of the film, even though he's pretty objectively not. It's just sort of, I mean, he's certainly a very, very flawed hero, anti-hero uh, at, at, at minimum. But uh, uh, the, the movie uh, sort of has fun with the, the, with its two main monsters, I'll put it that way. Uh, and uh, their sort of dark mirror relationship with each other. Winslow's
3: anger spoke to me but that's about it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> a, a amusing story about him getting his head uh, I- uh, caught in the uh, in the record press. Uh, apparently, that was an actual record press. Uh, they padded it a little bit, uh, but uh, they they put some chalks in to uh, to keep it from closing completely. And it was strong enough that it broke the chalks, and he just barely managed to get his head out of it in time before it actually crushed his head. Um, ah, <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, wild and woolly days of seventies independent cinema.
0: I want to talk a little more about Beef.
2: Beef. I
3: love Beef. I
2: love Beef. Beef Beef is hilarious. I I I almost yelled Beef during my intro earlier. (laughs) Beef. Beef. (laughs) Uh,
0: I also found Beef's uh, reliance on homosexuality as comedy problematic. It's a lot
1: more problematic now than it was at the time. However, he is actually endearing enough he, uh, I mean a, a, as portrayed by the always pretty wonderful Garrett Graham um, yeah I think he's uh, he, he, he's endearing enough that uh, that he kind of overcomes the uh, uh, the uh, the broad stereotyping uh, I, I actually feel bad uh, that he got done there
0: uh, yeah that I think that's uh, that's where the movie lost me a little bit was they created such a likable fun character to kill him off. In in also in a comedic way, but to kill him off at all just felt wrong to me. <laughs> at the same time, I was the, right there with uh, the,
1: uh, the 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 audio or the the the, uh, the groupies uh, outside chanting his name, even as his body was being carried off on a stretcher <laughs> in a body bag. It's like
3: beef. <laughs> the, the final stage dive, I guess. They carry him. Oh, no, oh never mind. Beef. De- and of course, that, that and of course, that, uh,
1: that 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 little easily missed title on that Rolling Stone uh, mock up that they have beef dead at last.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, no, yeah, I, like, I love
1: him. like a lot of parodic movies, it is going to have uh, a, a lot of sort of problematic elements by uh, by current standards. That being said, it has a lot less problematic elements than a lot of uh, De Palma's other movies. But uh, uh, by by current standards, and I, I don't mean this to damn it with faint praise. Uh, I I like this uh, I, I like everybody in this movie enough that I am just kind of willing to go with them on their story, even if they end up getting you know uh, you know completely you know a raw deal uh, as it goes along.
0: And De-, De Palma's also been criticized uh, in some of his other movies for his uh, uh, use of uh, homosexuality or LGBTQ uh, uh, type people to create a, a sense of terror. Like Dress to Kill is a good example. And that was problematic when it came out. Like yeah. people had a problem with that one.
2: Yeah. And he's also, you know, criticized a lot for, you know, cri- of course, Cribbing Hitchcock, which he. Kind of does in a funny way here. He does the psycho scene, and then it ends with a, a toilet plunger to Beef's face.
1: Yeah, the, sho- the shower, the shower scene in this. Uh, uh, somebody else said it, but I'm gonna gank it. Somebody, uh, the shower scene in
2: this is funnier than the one in High Anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> he also does an extended riff on uh, Touch of Evil with the with the car bomb scene. Yeah. Uh, uh, with with that split screen, so you know you see uh, Winslow do something to that car in the first part of the scene, then it's a long split screen. Scene and I'm like, what am I supposed to be looking at? Like, what's happening? Uh, and then, the, then the bomb goes off, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's he's doing touch of evil. That
1: that that scene actually played uh, kind of interestingly in the uh, the four channel stereo mix that turned up on the uh, uh, the Arrow Blu-ray that we ended up rewatching uh, uh, for the. Uh, uh, When we uh, rewatched this, I had previously seen it in the uh, the Shout Factory uh, uh, release, which was 5.1, but the four-channel stereo mix actually had basically all of the dialogue in that scene in the left channel and all of the music in that scene in the right channel, which was an interesting take the music was definitely mixed a bit louder so it helped in this case that we had subtitles but uh, but uh, that that was something that they did in a lot of the early stereophonic pictures back around you know the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the late 50s and the early 60s so i think uh, that even the way that the scene was constructed from a technical standpoint was kind of an homage uh, to that era, which, uh, apropos of you know the the Beach Boys riff, which I actually like upholstery better than any actual Beach Boys songs. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a, a ridiculous song, but uh, but uh, I, it, it it it's catchy, you know. It, and can I give at this point a, an incidental shout out uh, to the absolute good sports of the three guys uh, playing uh, the. Uh, Uh, the Juicy Fruits, a.k.a. the Beach Bums, a.k.a. uh, the Undeads, Uh, including Archie Hahn, who was uh, for a long time a regular on the British version of uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? and uh, later became actually a favorite of Joe Dante.
0: Um, I'd I'd also like to talk a little bit about uh, De Palma's tricks. As for lack of a better term, um, he has a lot of camera tricks that he likes to use and, and that he that he, as you said, cribs uh, from other directors, other filmmakers. Um, but he makes them his own in a way, uh, I think it has a distinct De Palma style to it. He loves split screen. He owns, uh, he,
1: he owns that split screen more than anybody else who's tried it yeah. before since. That's that's, yeah. that's that's on the record.
0: Yeah, he he loves his split screen and he does it very well. Uh he loves having characters talk directly to the camera. Um he he loves wide angle lenses. He's a big fan of them. You you can see them all over his work, just uh especially in Raising Kane*. It's almost yeah. nothing but wide angle lenses in Raising Cane. Um
1: if it's, there not, are a lot of- if it's not a fisheye, it's a deep focus diopter.
0: <laughs> it's probably like a ten millimeter. But uh he uses these tricks in all of his movies I've noticed. And the tricks really do start, uh, with this one with, with, uh, or i am not, I'm actually not sure what his first movie was, but, uh, what was his first movie?
1: Uh, I think it was The Wedding Party, or at least his first feature. He also did a couple of documentaries, uh, 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 one of uh, the, the notable one of which that I have but haven't seen is called Dionysus in 69, which was a film of a uh, stage performance, actually with William Finley as Dionysus. That was based on the Bacchae. Uh, but he, uh, that was the first one that he actually used the split screen in, uh, I am told because he was simultaneously filming the stage performance, uh, as well as the audience watching the same stage performance. And occasionally they would cross over between the two, um, because it was one of those living theater things that were, uh, that, that were very hip, uh, in the, uh, the 1960s, uh, There was also another picture that he did, which uh, I still haven't seen. It was included as a uh, supplemental feature on the Criterion release of Blowout, also starring William Finley, called Murder a la Maud, which was a, as I understand it, comic slasher movie, uh, or in this case, comic proto-slasher movie, because uh, while it was after Psycho, it was before anything else that we would call a slasher movie, Uh, and the little bit of it that I saw before falling asleep that time, uh, did have a lot of the, uh, uh kind of the, uh, the wide angle lens and a few fish eyes, if I recall correctly. So a lot of his visual tricks are things that he's just been sort of gradually refining over the time. But at this point, I like that style so much that at least for me, it, 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 the reuse of the tricks, uh, crosses kind of the Rubicon from, uh, uh from bug to feature, uh, I like De Palma best when he is repeating himself or at least when he's repeating the things that he's done that I, that I've liked.
0: He's, he's had a couple of shots that got me to roll my eyes. Cause I've, I'm like, I've seen that, like that is word for word a, a shot that I've seen before uh, in another film. But, and I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, when he aped on uh, Vertigo, uh, which he does a lot, yeah, but he yeah. he took the uh, the 360 uh, dolly around as they're kissing scene from vertigo I think it was in dress to kill but it may have been body double it, uh, well I mean of course he had a
1: 360 when uh, when L- Winslow was performing uh the uh, that first iteration of uh, faust as well
0: yeah but what what I mean is in vertigo uh it starts with Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak and it it go it, they're in the apartment and they're kissing and it go the camera goes all the way around until they're in the church uh the Spanish church again uh, the set completely changes, and then it goes back to the original set. Oh, he does uh, that exact same shot.
1: Climactic shot of blowout.
0: Is that blowout? Yeah, uh, yeah that must have been. Yeah, okay. the
1: the one with the uh, the one with the Antonioni fireworks in the sky, as uh, except ex- instead of kissing, it's uh, it's uh, John Travolta embracing Nancy Allen's uh, now inert, lifeless body. Okay. Well, I mean,
0: I haven't seen I think it lot, I think he's time. I think
1: he's done it that's the one that jumps most directly to mind for that particular
0: guy. I don't and I don't think that's the one I'm thinking of. I, I really think it was it was either body double or dress to kill that he did it in. Um but I just I don't recall. I just remember that one shot and being like, "Come on, man. I, I get you like Hitchcock. I get it." Well, I
1: mean, this was also a period when homage was new, uh, at least in film. So, uh the, it, it, uh the the idea of deliberately referencing uh, uh Directors was not really uh, a thing that had uh, been done very much outside of the French uh, Nouvelle Vague uh, up to that point. I mean, of course, uh, Chabrol had already, you know, ganked a mess of Hitchcock at this point when De Palma was like, figures, well, I like Hitchcock. Why not gank some of his uh, or why not, uh, you know, show off what I learned from him?
0: And I I don't think he's anywhere near as bad as Ryan Murphy. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's an odd name to drop
0: there. I I don't think I
1: quite have the context on that, aside from Ryan Murphy ganks everything from everybody and just kind of throws it into a blender and sees what drips out, and sometimes it works like an American Horror Story hotel, and sometimes it doesn't work like basically any of the other American
0: Horror Stories, at least that I've seen. I was thinking specifically of the first season of American Horror Story where he uses Vertigo, the Vertigo soundtrack for the whole damn thing. And it's like, come on, <laughs> fuck you, man. You're not that good. The show's not Hitchcock, idiot.
1: <laughs> I know you've been kind of quiet over there, Jane. I know that you didn't particularly enjoy the picture, but was there anything else that you wanted to kind of uh, uh, interject over here aside from you didn't particularly enjoy the picture?
3: Uh, well, I okay i will actually interject that (sighs) truthfully truthfully i liked it a little bit better the second time i watched it just a little bit but also the things that i remembered that horrified me the first time i was like oh god why am i watching i was just like gripping the couch you know the the arm of the couch going oh man don't say anything because i know i know jenner loves this (laughs) but all i wanted to do was like crap on it. So, <laughs> anyway, that's all. And you're saying, is there a chance if we watch it a hundred more times you'll actually like it? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. I, I i am not
1: going to foist it on you again anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> okay. And it, I will no, admit that oh, when ahead. I hear uh, the And music I was gonna say and if I do it's probably at, it's DVD. probably gonna be in the
3: um, but anyway, uh, the one thing I really like is the music at on the um, at the beginning of the DVD which is I think the hell of it music but that 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 and whenever I hear that I'm like yeah that's great and then I'm like hey maybe I want to watch this and then I'm always disappointed so anyway that's that's I don't awesome. know, you have
1: to admit that the finale is an extraordinary f- f- feat of sort of cinematic choreography uh Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of stuff going on, but it all remains uh, fairly coherent. And it's, uh, it got an incredible scale to it, uh, given the context. And uh, it, uh, I find it sort of thrillingly edited and tragic. And then it just punches, you know, right through that burning bird uh, into the, uh, into the closing credits. And, you know, I I love the way the movie ends as much as anything else, I suppose.
3: Well, I noticed some things about it this time. Like, did you notice the one audience member watching uh, the Phantom die while wearing the Phantom's helmet covered in blood? Did you see that? Yeah, no, I I had not
1: noticed that before. Uh,
3: And then I was like, okay, that, damn. And And the whole audience is just watching this, like watching this man die like it's part of the show, just observing. Which you know, you know, you can say, "Oh, it's like too much reality TV shock treatment." But anyway, oh which as, I don't like as,
1: either. As Swan would say, "That's entertainment."
0: Uh. <laughs> These people have been entertained, really entertained. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to bring up one uh, last thing before we move to our break. Um, I was a little put off by Jessica Harper's character Phoenix. Uh, her the way she was presented. Um, and most women are presented by De Palma as willing to do
2: anything for
0: power or a dick.
2: Yeah, I did not get that first. impression of her and yeah, I didn't get that impression until she just went with Swan and then she's just in his bed. That to me came out of nowhere. Like I didn't feel like her character was going in that direction. I actually yeah, thought I maybe like I thought maybe uh, Leach when he climbed on the roof was dreaming when he saw them together. So that was a little jarring to me.
0: For, for yeah, me,
2: it, it kind of I was like, oh, yeah, OK, there it is.
0: There's the De Palma thing uh, <laughs> where because it didn't make sense for the character to me. She is definitely
1: but... a bit of an object. Uh, she, she is kind of a walking plot device. She, I, I'll agree that she's a bit underwritten. I still love Jessica Harper. Uh, She's actually tied with Sigourney Weaver and Boris Karloff as being the only actors with three movies in the roughly 18 to 20 that comprise my top
0: five. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Jessica Harper is great. Well, on that note, I think uh, I think that's a good place for our break. Uh, We'll be right back. Back, Uh, Jenner. You wanted to add one final thought to *Phantom of the Paradise* before we move over into *Raising Cain*.
1: Yeah, I I, I was just thinking about the incalculable contribution to this film uh, that uh, that Paul Williams made, and when you think about the role that he found himself in here, is working in a screenplay by somebody else that basically casts him or someone like him or in a similar position, uh, you know, basically a big pop star. In uh, the role of the villain, and then proceeds to write all of the music and songs for it. I I could only recall the uh, a- an apocryphal quote from Henry Kissinger: "Always be the villain of your own autobiography."
0: <laughs> he was wonderful. He was what wo- he was perfect in the film. Uh, uh, just kind of a. Uh, a Phil Spector figure. He, he played it very well.
1: Yes, yes, I thought that. It, it just a beautiful performance, and you know can't can't be appreciated enough. Yeah.
0: Well, let's move on to Raising Cain. Uh, this was not on my pile. I brought this to you guys, saying, "Hey, watch Raising Cain. It's batshit and weird and and campy and dumb as hell and great." <laughs> and I
3: said, "Okay, I've never seen it before. Guess what?"
0: no really i've seen it before (laughs) and i loved it the first time of course
3: i think we probably watched it a couple of times but this is back in the early 90s and the time of the video rental so yeah i've seen it and i loved it then and i loved it again thanks for bringing it back to me man
2: (laughs) yep no problem i would never seen it before i i do remember the poster vividly as a as a kid and kind of freaking me out even though i knew uh mostly from uh Harry and the Hendersons. Just his his face on that poster was like, yeah, that was scary to me. But yeah, this the movie Third was batshit.
1: I, I I kind I of guess love. I kind of love that basically all other directors put uh, Lithgow in varying degrees of innocuous or comedic roles, but in all three movies that De Palma got him, he was absolutely the heavy. Uh, He was the surprise heavy in Obsession. Uh, He was the, you know, G. Gordon Liddy-esque Dirty Tricks expert uh, who was the ultimate villain of Blowout. Uh, And then, of course, he is, well, he is in this picture. And I, (laughs) I, I had never seen this picture, which I now regard as an abject oversight. Uh, I remembered, of course, the, uh, both the posters and the trailer from around the time that it came out. I think I was vaguely dissuaded from some of the dodgier reviews that I encountered at the time. I had a lot to learn. I was friggin' 16 when this came out and somehow I had just kind of never gotten around to it in the interim, but I have not giggled tittered and squeed so hard for a movie uh in a very long time I laughed my ass off for this picture uh, <laughs> and I do mean that as a good thing this is this is not in any way mocking it I think the movie is one of the most gleefully ridiculous quote-unquote thrillers I think I've ever seen it was uh, joyfully
3: ridiculous yeah, I mean, exactly. it, it, it just it did inspire joy it inspired happiness and giggling because even though you couldn't necessarily take it completely seriously, it was still really good. Really good.
2: I, I found mean, this, d- po- I found this poster with this tagline on it, which I found ridiculous and hilarious. Uh, it says demented, deranged, deceptive, De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 which I thought I, was perfect.
1: I remember that one because they were kind of selling it as a, as sort of a return to his, uh, to his goofball thriller, uh, roots, which apparently De Palma himself was actually a little bit wary of, but ultimately, apparently, he said, "You know, fuck it," and made the most goofball of his goofball thrillers, even including some of the ones that have come since then, like Passion and Femme Fatale. Um,
0: I I really consider this to be borderline him parodying himself. In a uh,
1: lot of ways. That was actually a common suspicion at the time that it was released, as I understand it, uh, and I I kind of agree with that. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's it, it feels as much uh, like a parody of self-important clockwork uh, hermetic clockwork thrillers. Uh, Thri- thrillers where nothing is going on uh, outside the content of, the, uh, uh, of uh, uh, the characters of the film. I suppose that's not necessarily a great way to explain it, but uh, it, it lacks any conceivable political context. It's, uh, it, it's just exceedingly well-dressed, apparently well-to-do uh, characters doing each other some severe wet work. And I am here for it. Um, I mean, good God, did any other director ever have the nerve to dress Stephen Bauer that well?
0: <laughs> Gray three-piece and tan trench coat, and he rocked it. Um, <laughs> that, talk about an objectified character. That that dude had nothing to go on. Yeah. Uh, it, when he wasn't purely objectified,
1: he was absolutely deer in the headlights. And again, that's absolutely—it's it, just perfect. It's—I mean, good God! Even the cops bringing Greg Henry in uh, at the halfway of the point uh, point of the film—the villain of Body Double, by the way—as uh, these completely. Some of the most deadpan police detectives that I think I can recall in anything, and it just adds this bizarro, hard-boiled layer on top of this, you know, fervid skinamax without the skin plotting. Um, that
3: was my favorite line in the movie too. He took a swan dive off a uh, off a fjord eighteen years ago. <laughs> 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 That's, like, yeah. That's like the best line. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anybody... sure others have better lines than that, but that was mine. That's the one I liked the most.
2: Did anybody end up watching the, the, uh, the director's cut of this?
1: I, t- I took a look at the, the first uh, uh, half an hour or so just to get a sense of what had been changed, but you were going to say.
2: Yeah, I found this movie utterly confounding uh, at first because – so it starts off strong. It starts off absolutely batshit. And um, then we spend – so go has got a split personality. And he's killing he's kidnapping babies and killing women. And then we spend a lot of time with his wife who's having dreams about this guy. And I'm like, why are we spending so much you know, not that I'm against the strong female protagonist, but your husband is has split personality. He's killing people. Like, why are we with you? And then I found out that De Palma apparently either he was interfered with or he lost his nerve in the editing room and completely restructured the movie.
1: And of course, uh I find it interesting that the wife is the only character with any actual uh, voiceover or interior monologue and not of the uh, sort of of the, you know, filled it in afterwards, but in the uh, sense that it was organically there in the first place. The thing about the uh, the director's cut, which they finally restored in uh, 2016, was it was actually a fan edit. Uh, as I understand it, uh, and I'm pulling this from Wikipedia because I keep forgetting the guy's name, a, uh, uh, another, a uh, uh, Dutch uh, director uh, in his own right named Pete Gelderblom uh, had gotten a hold of a copy of uh, De Palma's uh, original script and decided to do a fan edit restructuring the film as um as the script dictated. And apparently somehow uh, the uh, his version of the thing, after it had been uh, you know, released uh, through the internet, through the channels that fan edits go down, had fallen into De Palma's lap. De Palma called him and said... It's beautiful. I love it. It's perfect. Call Shout Factory. Make sure that they put this on the Blu-ray release. Tell them to call me if they need to. I'll answer any questions that they want. And ended up ultimately entrusting the HD master of the film to his fan editor. Uh, Which is kind of an extraordinary story, uh, I I think, in its own right.
2: Um, Isn't that the dream for us all? Uh, yeah, to make a fan edit of something and have the director be like, "Yeah, that's that's way better."
1: That's exactly <laughs> what it was supposed to be. Thank you. <laughs> so, but yeah, it it, uh, it does make more sense because essentially the uh, the first I guess twenty or so minutes of the film, uh, and the uh, the next uh, twenty or so minutes of the film are reversed. It starts with them going into the uh, uh, the clock store, uh, and continues. As it went at that point, following the wife with Lithgow as just sort of a character lurking around the background right up uh, right through the point where she wakes up three times uh, from uh, uh, from dreams, which I think is, uh, again, just absolute thriller anarchy uh, right there. But but but, you know, ultimately uh, ends up switching over to Lithgow's story right at the point where he's smothering her with the pillow. Uh, And then we get the film as it uh, as it originally opened and uh, 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 leaning into what has to be the most delirious performance that uh, uh, that Lithgow has ever given in anything before
0: or since, certainly that I can think of. Uh, It kind of it sounds like the director's cut is way better. It really, uh, the
1: structure is vastly improved just based on the bit that uh, that I saw. I mean, amongst other things, I, I I didn't have the opportunity to laugh at the random uh, inner monologue voiceover from Lolita Davidovich kicking in. What was it, thirty-five minutes into the picture uh, in the Something theatrical like that. version? <laughs> Uh, and you know, talking about you now how, how she has this wonderful husband, but there were all of these other circumstances. I, Baby, you do not have a wonderful husband. He is not <laughs> the perfect husband. We already know what he's been up to. I, I mean, the major surprise of the uh, uh, of the film uh, ultimately, I guess, ends up being that Lithgow actually is playing a dual role. Aside from playing a character or one of which, one of which character actually does have multiple personalities I mean that's nut bars enough in its own right
0: probably setting back mental health in film for decades but that's okay to,
1: I mean to the extent that all other film that involved mental health didn't set mental health back for decades <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> No, but this, this 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 is this is a, a a film that leans so hard into absurdity it comes back out out the other side. It's just it, it's one of those flagellantly batshit movies where they just keep hitting you and hitting you and hitting you, and, hitting you, and you keep saying, "Yeah, what else you got?"
3: But it wasn't <laughs> just it, hitting you. They had the subtle bits like. Um... I do not remember the German lady walking down oh, the hall. That oh, yeah. one uh, long walk and talk, where she God. keeps trying to walk off the wrong direction yeah. and they keep pulling her back. I think they pulled her back like five times, and every time I just crack up. It was so That's, good, though. And, and of
1: course, That's my
0: favorite part of the movie.
1: And, <laughs> well, I mean, of, I mean, of course, it's an absolutely. I, I mean, uh, the usual absolutely stellar work from the incomparable Francis Sternhagen. Uh, so uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that was a great... I mean, all of, uh, all of De Palma's tricks are on ample display in this picture. And once again, just with, with the refinement of, uh, of age and practice, he pulls all of them off just amazingly. Uh, this is a film that has, in some ways, not aged terribly well, or at least wouldn't have if you took it the least bit seriously. But at the same time, it doesn't. Why should you? <laughs> uh, I, I I I actually appreciated, and I, I I know Jane did as well. You texted me after you saw this. It's like uh, you you apologize for not including the trigger war- the trigger warning about child endangerment, uh, and this is that rare movie where it didn't bother Jane because it was just so ridiculous from the get
3: go. Exactly, I was laughing yeah. the whole time, but I also knew that the children weren't so much in danger. I think the only twinge I really felt was like these kids are going to grow up without you know well yeah. a mom but other than I that, had that other than that i mean i wasn't really where i didn't really like it when the baby was in the garage crying mommy,
2: when, he's, mommy. When, he's, yeah, when he's yeah when he's trying to bone his wife while the girl's in, the, in his garage he's like oh let's go yeah make out with the wife but, well, no, but it wasn't. He he wasn't it wasn't the girl
1: in the garage. It was the little boy. It in was the little garage. boy. Oh, the little boy in the garage. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah, the little kid. She was kid. in the
1: trunk, though, right? No, no. They very pointedly cut to uh, uh, the... The, uh, a picture of the television monitor, uh, where the uh, where the daughter was still sound asleep, but there was this screaming going on elsewhere. No, I'm just saying,
0: while the kid was screaming, the mom was in the trunk at the same right. time. Right, and I, bl- I will also yes.
3: call kind of I'll call call bullshit on that because. I can tell my kids, I could when he was a baby, I could tell his cries from anybody else's. I mean, I, you know, my husband would be walking around a store with him and he'd start freaking out, which was pretty much normal for Trey, um, well, and, and I'd be like, yeah, that's my kid, and I'd hear another baby, like, you know, a couple aisles over, I'd be, no, no, that's not my kid.
1: Well, I actually, will lean into a little, sort of an arguable problem of the film, or at least that De Palma issue that we keep running into, which is Lolita Davidovich's character is written as a complete ditz. I know she's supposed to be a doctor, but my God, the woman is
0: dense. Um, <laughs> she's, she's kind of awful too. She
3: is. And she gets everything she wants too. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, you well, don't
0: deserve it. Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not with that, the oh. The last shot of the film.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well.
1: Nobody gets out of her alive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I know you had a few more thoughts on this, Shane.
2: I do. No, I've lost my train of thought. You're I'm trying. I, well, yeah, I'm trying to find a, a way to get back in. Uh,
0: let's talk about Lithgow's multiple performances a little bit. Um, he was great in all of them, obviously, as Carter, Kane, Margo, uh, Jack, I think it was, the kid? No, Josh. 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 And uh, I I actually, I especially loved his scene as Josh uh, with Dr. Walltime uh, uh, talking back and forth with her because it was like pure Lithgow. Just Lithgow getting to do everything that Lithgow is good at. <laughs> and uh, it's something that I don't think any other director really gets out of Lithgow. I think De Palma and, and Lithgow work so well together and he gets such fun performances out of them. You could tell they're having a good time, uh, which makes a lot of the more grisly, smarmy, disgusting parts of the movie tolerable.
1: Well, I mean, it's like I say, nobody else has ever figured out, uh, I mean, with the possible exception of that season of Dexter, uh, which may have been sort of uh, leaning on uh, Lithgow's De Palma experience in any event. Nobody ever figured out how to use Lithgow in, in this way. Uh, but Lithgow always uh, rose to the challenge for De Palma. It's, uh, it, it's some of his best character work all over the place, but I mean the, the phrase tour de force was thrown around for this movie even in the, in the reviews that thought it was a
0: bad movie. Yeah, it is a tour de force. <laughs>
3: <laughs> how can anybody think it was bad?
0: They, they must took it, not they have
3: might, gotten
0: it. They,
1: they, they didn't get so it, good. exactly. They, they tried to take it seriously. Yeah, oh. you need to have a sense of humor,
0: I think, to, yeah, to that's get gotta this be movie.
2: It. And it could have been the structure. You know, like I said, I was confused by why they kept cutting away from Lithgow and going to the wife. I'm like, Lithgow's got a lot of stuff going on. Why do we care about this wife and this affair? But, you know, I didn't know at the time about the structure.
0: Yeah, I really want to see that director's cut now. You yeah, know, the,
1: the, the Shout Factory disc uh, is, uh, it, it's a very good set. I'm very glad that I finally picked it up, uh, uh, spurred on by the expectation of doing this episode of this podcast.
3: <laughs> yeah, it arrived, um, was it Sunday, Sunday afternoon? Yeah, and we watched it Sunday night, like, boom, just like that. So
2: I did have one question. Who's, so, you know, the wife, he, he tries to drown his wife in the car and she survives, of course. Who's the dead body they find in the car?
3: The first lady. That's
2: uh, yeah, the mom from the beginning. Oh, the little boy's
3: mom, the one that had been in the trunk. The
2: one from nine hundred two one zero. No, she was the
3: babysitter. It was the first one.
2: Oh, okay. I okay. I just I just missed that.
3: Yeah, Uh,
0: the the one one he sneezes on. Yes. Oh yes. That was so ridiculous, and I was
3: like COVID (laughs) (laughs) nineteen. But no, not know? back then. I'm like, stop sneezing on her, man. And then, oh, right. <laughs>
0: With the
2: best little sneezes. His sneezes were adorable. <laughs> so dangerous. Don't you. Until he has a handful of dust for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and then he used your favorite thing chloroform yep.
3: right right yeah i was sitting there going does this smell like chloroform to you but anyway. <laughs> 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 and we all know it takes much longer for chloroform to, for to knock somebody out and, and
2: apparently it kills you i think so I, I i meant to look that up since i brought it no, up
3: No, it didn't kill her um it, he said uh the cat's in no, the I bag re- and the bag's in the river
2: no, we mean in real life. Yeah, I think in real oh. life it's very dangerous to chloroform somebody oh, like that. But I mean okay. I think that Well but Curious
3: soon... George did it. Didn't he?
2: <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> I did think that was a very skillful bit of suspense with the two uh the, the two joggers walking by the car and he's trying to figure out what the hell to do. I mean it's silly, oh, yeah. but also very well done. I also love, you know, when the doctor the is she a doctor? The, the the German lady. They're walking through the hallways. Yeah. And she just has this seemingly throwaway line about her stupid wig. And then, of <laughs> course, you know, Lithgow uses that to escape. And that, to me, just screams that Topalma uh, was writing that scene. He got stuck. He's like, how do I get Lithgow out of the hospital? He needs a wig. How do I get a wig on him? Just, wig. Yeah, Chekhov's, Chekhov's wig. Chekhov's wig. Exactly. <laughs> and there's, there's, also a, there's also a Chekhov's uh, sundial, which doesn't go off as expected. When I saw the sundial and there's a... When the guy yells about the sundial, I wrote down in my notes, Oh, Lithgo's gonna die by sundial. And it uh, was in that
3: which, pickup which, truck or something yeah. like it. And they kept yeah, backing it, it up and forwarding back and forth yeah, and back and, 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 and the, forth. And you're expecting he's gonna get impaled.
2: On this, and, and, then, on this and then we have this then we have one of, you know, De Palma's famous like slow motion sort of it reminded me of uh, both the uh, the the baby carrier scene in The Untouchables, and also the the Rube Goldberg ending of Snake Eyes, uh, <laughs> where where everything falls into place perfectly.
1: Another absolutely ludicrous De Palma yeah. film that I uh, that that has really grown on me with repeat repeat
2: viewings. Yeah. I've only seen it the once, but yeah, the, the, you know the baby dropping anyway. in slow motion, and then uh, Stephen Bauer catching him, and then the sundial getting shot off right at the last second. That to me felt very De Palma. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That that was very De Palma.
0: I was almost a little sad that 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 that, that thing never impaled anybody.
3: <laughs> well, it did in a dream.
0: True. <laughs> I, I, oh. get, I, I
1: get I <laughs> get the I get the giggles just thinking about this picture.
0: Uh, I I want to read uh, one of my notes. Uh, De Palma cares more about angles than a coherent plot.
1: <laughs> well, Probably I'm gonna true. go. Uh, my, my, my immediate uh, and unbidden response to that is and <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's more it's, it was more a uh, just a statement it, than a question. It's more of an observation than a criticism. <laughs> right yes. there you go. Okay there you go. <laughs> he loves angles. So many Dutch angles in this film. So many they just keep coming. He even has a tracking Dutch angle. I don't think I've ever seen a tracking Dutch angle. I cannot think of one off the top of my head, to be
1: certain. And
3: about now, I want to ask, what's a Dutch angle?
0: It's when you ca- when you turn the camera on its side, uh, oh, so everything yeah. looks diagonal.
2: <laughs> my, favorite shot movie, but, my favorite uh, shot in my... the movie is, is so my favorite shot is where you see a shot of Lithgow, and then the camera pans over to the tree, and so you don't see Lithgow anymore, and the camera pans back, and now he's the other personality. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. Yeah,
0: that was. So cool. I like I liked that a lot because it, it does make very clear that that uh, it's a personality and not like I thought I thought at first he was gonna try to play the switcheroo where is it a split personality or not? Yeah, I wasn't sure either. But uh, but he he doesn't play that for long. Uh, he he gets into the split personality pretty, pretty quickly, or at least if you're watching the, the way the film speaks, uh, you can see it.
1: Well, like I say, like I, say I think uh, sort of the neat trick is they make us think that the father is a split in the personality as well, but it isn't. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Yeah, that's a great that is a great twist. <laughs>
3: he took a swan dive off a fjord <laughs> 18 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Best line in that movie. Uh, I did like how we got to see Josh. We got to yeah. see the little kid personality. Oh, with, had... with
0: the uh, adult voice.
3: Yes, it was so creepy and fun. I actually I know did like what
0: it. you're gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> that voice, that voice was so weird. I guess that was Lithgow doing doing the voice. Uh, it, it had to have been, but uh, I did not recognize his voice at all.
3: Isn't it funny, though, that um, in in his head, the, the kid sounded like an adult, but when he was Josh talking to the German lady, <laughs> he sounded like a kid. <laughs> it was like, okay. <laughs> may, may,
0: maybe a little bit of a plot hole, but that's okay. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> it gets its point
1: across. I mean, it's not a complex film. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I wasn't it, expecting it, it to be perfect. Right? It's a
1: it's a complicated picture, but that's kind of the nature of the very particular subgeneric ground that uh, that De Palma is giddily uh, traversing again in this uh, in this instance. It doesn't. It, it's not there for depth. Uh, if you're looking for uh, clinical exactitude, you're barking up the wrong tree at the risk of possibly mixing multiple metaphors
0: there <laughs> um, <laughs> i i think that can uh, i and of course he knows he knows what he's doing with this thing i i think the hypnotism bit where uh, dr waldheim says we could try hypnotism it's bullshit but we could try it <laughs> well you got the feeling that sternhagen was the character
1: in the the character in the film who was most in on the joke um yeah which, to a great extent, was kind of her niche as an actress anyway. Uh, I, I, don't know, I believe she passed on a while back, which is a pity because she was
0: great. I miss her. Yeah. She was, she was my favorite character in this one. I, I always liked her a lot. Kind of the Donald Pleasants figure. Yes, nicely put.
3: And it really was a great scene. That, that one long shot from the office down to the, the the outside. It was just so good. And oh, that little wandering bed. I know I mentioned it previously, but no, I no, just it, have it, to put it in again. I love that. The cop would just grab her by the arm and bring her back and she'd start to wander off.
1: And it's a really it was, wonderful detail. It was uh, just
3: not, not necessary, but wonderful. Wonderful. It was like frosting. It was like, you know, sprinkles. It's a, yeah. yeah. Another cool thing about that sprinkles? scene
0: <laughs> um, is the uh, the cops, uh, their demeanor changes throughout the the whole thing. They start off almost making fun of her behind her back. And by the end of the walk and everything she said, they're totally into it. They're like, oh, wow. OK. I had I not noticed
3: that. that. That's great. There now There are some
0: some
1: really beautiful, subtle bits of characterization sprinkled all throughout the picture.
2: Yeah, there was also the bit with the with the cops with a with the, the old cop coming in and they were initially very dismissive of him and I just thought, Oh, these these dumb cops are just gonna write him off. But then he gives them a story and they're like, Oh, we should check this Lithgow guy out. I <laughs> thought that was a nice little detail. <laughs> I
0: love how quickly they
2: got on top of him. They're yeah. like,
0: This this guy's bad news immediately. It, it <laughs> it's kind of wonderful that you could
1: almost uh, conceive of, like, another version of this story that is just these deadpan, competent cops working a case. The, uh, like, you, 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 could, you, uh, you could
2: do a fan edit of this as a Law & Order episode. Although, <laughs> although when Lithgow needs to escape, all half the cops in the building fall asleep. Just, <laughs> including Stephen Bauer. They're just all asleep. And yeah, and they leaves. don't
3: wake up immediately either. Did he have more chloroform? Magical <laughs> yeah. chloroform? Did, did he drug
2: them or something? Or were they... no, because he was he was in prison, right? Or he was he was in custody, so they must have just gotten bored and just drifted off.
3: Well, I think he was in like the room where they'd been questioning him.
1: I mean, so, I mean, these are these are municipal wasn't... police officers we're talking about.
2: Yeah, even the guy like stationed outside the door where he's talking to the German doctor just passes out. He's like, oh. Yeah, he's,
0: he's. they show him knocked out later, but did he really need to knock him out or kill him, I guess?
3: They, he walked past the people who were asleep, so it's not like he was doing it. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Well, no, they, Am I wrong? Yeah. I, I, that's,
3: I think that's how I remember it.
0: Well, they show a body on the ground later.
1: The, the rules of this sort of thing, I think, tend to go that your villain can have a lucky break. Your hero, not so much.
3: Okay. Yeah. Well so, so he's got this, so in a pocket this... full of chloroform and a, an axe to grind.
1: And the uh, and the other <laughs> pockets. <a> great title. <laughs> and you know, the other pockets full of sand, you know, in case he needs it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously,
2: where did that fistful of grit come from? <laughs> Who it's cares? Classic combo, sand in the eye, chloroform. That's how you're supposed to do it, right? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> The old one-two snooze.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I think we're getting close to our ending here. (laughs) Um, Does anybody have any final thoughts on Raising Cain?
3: So glad I didn't remember and got to experience it as if it was new. It was fantastic. I loved
2: it. It's fun. Yeah, check it out. I like both movies. I would watch both again or for the first time if you haven't seen them. I
1: would watch one. I'm going to go with, perversely enough, watch both of these movies before you listen to this episode of this podcast. (laughs) Oh no, at the end of the podcast. (laughs) At this point, I think we have an assumed spoiler warning. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I would hope
0: so. I I would assume that if you're you're listening to a podcast that deals with random movies that you probably have seen them.
1: One would hope. Never can tell.
0: (laughs) Well... Spoiler alert.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: Better
0: late than never. (laughs) That'll about do it for us here on What's on the Pile. Join us next week for a special gaming episode where we discuss the fighting game community, or FGC. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at What's on the Pile, or visit our website, whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out.